Father, save me. Father, save me. The gods are down here. It's the six of us, you hear me? Now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father, no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die by my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. I place my life. I don't mention the night's watch. Release night and all the nights to come. Good morrow, blind old men, feeble babies, and rising heroes, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, devotee of the god of tits and wine. (laughs) And I'm Lady Rachel of House Fox, master of multitasking. Oh yeah, and this is episode 81. On this episode of our series rewatch, we are covering Game of Thrones, season 4, episode 9, the Watchers on the Wall. And in case you're not already aware, this series rewatch is from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. That means you've seen up through season seven. If not, there's still time to be impaled upon the massive arrow of an angry giant with such force as to be lifted clean up and off the top of a 700-foot wall to plummet to your death so you don't have to hear these spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of proud that of that awesome. one. <laughs> Warning. Spoiler alert. Man, man, I love this episode. How about you? I love it. I really had a hard time choosing a top five out of this episode because it was kind of all one seamless scene. There wasn't really, I mean, there were bits and pieces of dialogue and important moments throughout this episode, but really... I'm not mistaken, other than Battle of the Blackwater, that episode, Blackwater and this episode are the only episodes to take place in one single location. Right. I think they call them bottle episodes. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Pretty interesting, right? So that, I mean, it made it a little hard for me to separate it out. Right. I had considered um, suggesting just covering the episode in chronological order, just for a change, you know, to mix it up a little. But by the time I thought of that, it was only like 20 minutes ago. So we already had all of our notes prepared and everything. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, so we'll just try. do it normally. <laughs> yeah. So that um, that just goes to show you how awesome this episode is because I really did struggle to separate it out because even the little moments in between my top five, like my top five is actually fairly short, but my notes are really long because I didn't know how to quantify putting them in one place or another. Well, I'm really interested to see what you ended up picking. So why don't you uh, start off with your number five? Me too. I'm interested to see what you picked. (laughs) So my number five is ghost. Awesome. Yes. Right. Finally. Some more ghosts. John is on top of the wall. And Sam comes up and tells him that shit is just hitting the fan down below. We need more men. It's just not looking good. 
and they come down the elevator and John looks to Sam, you know, and Sam is talking to John about, you know, fighting and John's protecting Sam because mm-hmm. John knows that Sam I don't is want not- you out there. Yeah. He knows that he's going to get himself killed, which I find funny because Sam does in fact kill the warg, the thin warg. Right. With a crossbow. So, you know, we, we know that Sam actually, while he is a self-proclaimed coward, he actually exudes bravery in uh, several episodes of the series. You know, when, when he kills the white Walker Yes, and here too, I mean, he keeps his cool. He's loading that crossbow. He points it, shoots it and boom, he's dead. Yeah. And I have in my notes, uh, let's see, where is it? It's pretty funny. Um, I have in the notes that the Then sees Sam and makes for him, probably because he looks nice and marbled. He's nice and marbled. <laughs> yeah, so I I love that John is protecting Sam here, and he looks at Sam and goes, as he hands him the keys to the cage, I need him more than I need you. Right, and that could be kind of taken as kind of insulting, but I don't think he meant it that way. I I actually have that in my notes too is I wonder if Sam kind of took that as an insult but I I don't think he did and I don't think John meant it as an right. insult. Either. I think he just probably thinks like yeah Ghost will be an, a big asset right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'll be talking more about um Sam and his cowardice or not uh, in my points as well. So good good point. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, so they get to the bottom of the elevator and John, in true warrior fashion, yes. just somersaults out of that thing so and just starts hacking ass, people dude. apart. Oh, man. And he he wields that sword like it's a lightsaber, just so fast. Like, the blade has no weight. And um, I guess they must have made it out of something really light to simulate that capability it's that aluminum. you have with the Valyrian steel blade. Oh, yeah? It's aluminum. Yeah, so I actually, I usually watch the DVDs. When I'm doing this, mm-hmm. but um, I actually happened to watch the HBO version just because I was on. I just honestly was too lazy to put the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been watching it on demand too. So I just I watched it on demand, but um, the editors the after the they talk about it. Um, is it called After the Throne or something yeah, like that? Yeah, so, something like that. Yeah, after the final throne or something like that. But um, they actually talked about Kit Harrington in that in um, filming. Nice. And when the editors got that footage, they rewound it and they said, "Wait, you know, someone put one of those like weird ramp up things on hit, uh, Kit Harrington's movement, and they, they wanted like, increase the speed." Removed. Yeah, they wanted it to be removed because they said it looked too fake mm-hmm. and the special effects people came back to the editors and told them that that was real time kit harrington swinging that yes. sword that it was not sped up in any way shape or form tremendous by- performance by kit harrington here yes yeah so i thought that was really cool and they made a note saying that it's really rare to find a high quality actor like Kit Harrington that can also perform these maneuvers and stunts the way 
he does. Mm-hmm. I think I would be good at this. Not think- not because I'm full of myself, but I I'm good at this type of thing. You know, so just give me the shot. You know. I think my husband would be good at it too because he's really fast. Yeah, nice, strong. Yeah, so you know, Sam runs over, and I believe this is actually the point where is he running across the yard and picks up the crossbow in this scene to kill the Fen to go release Ghost? Or yeah, I think it's before. Oh, to go up to talk to John. That's right. Yeah, it's it's after Ghost is released because when he when John tumbles out of the elevator like that and hits the ground and rolls, and he, he. takes out a couple guys and then it cuts to the shot that lasts like almost a minute where it does a full 360 of the entire castle black courtyard yes yes and you get to see all the main fighters it it pans from john kicking a guy down the stairs and posing like a badass against this railing then you see a grit firing away some arrows and then stirs smashing this guy with his double-sided axe and then torments like fighting his way up a stairway and then it cuts down uh, continues to pan around to Sam running over to let Ghost out from the door. Really great shot. Yeah, and so I love when Sam says, we need you, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they really do. And no hesitation on Ghost's part. We get that cool no. ghost vision shot, you know, right through from his eyes. Yeah, and he's just, he's ready to go. Yeah. And we, we pan back out to the battle scene and from stage left comes ghost and just starts ripping <laughs> the jugular out of that guy just torpedoes <laughs> him pretty intense <laughs> and, <laughs> um you know so we kind of continue the scene we don't see ghost again which is kind of a bummer but i chose ghost as my number five because i love the sentiment that john needed him and you know sam was there to help john get ghost and ghost clearly is holding his own and really helping the battle. Definitely. But we, um, we pan back over from ghost ripping the jugular out of that guy to John kind of fighting, you know, and just slaying down these wildlings. And then from across the, the yard, the Magnar then. Yeah. <laughs> and, they just start colliding with each other. And I have in my notes a real life David and Goliath type situation. Yeah. <laughs> oh that my God. guy, Agnarthen, is massive. I, I think mean, his, I uh, character's the character's name is Stir, I believe. S T Y R. Yeah, I mean, we know that Kit Harrington isn't like super tall. <laughs> it's kind of shrimpy. <laughs> he looks like a shrimp. In- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was another scene in this episode where Ink. Uh, Egret is looking up at him. <laughs> that was like her neck's gonna break. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> looking straight up at him, and I felt like John kind of right. Yeah, that guy's um, huge. Same way. I mean, they're swinging. I mean, long long claw is quite a formidable sword. It's very long. Oh, understatement. And you know, it's keep it's holding its own against this giant double-sided axe which is still i think one of my favorite weapons in game of thrones that axe is just insane yeah i mean i swear to god it's as tall as i am it's like right out of a video game and he's wielding it with one hand in that fight with john too he's got his his left hand i believe and he's just swinging that thing and blocking the, the blows with long claw and with that guy's height 
combined with his reach, combined with the length of that axe, he has like a good distance that he can swing like to hit John. Foot. Yeah, so John's got to like Muhammad Ali, like go, come into the cut and back out, trying to avoid that that massive reach. And long claw, yeah. it looks long when John's holding it, but it's a bastard sword, so it's a little bit shorter than a typical two-handed long sword. Yeah, and I think that's because John is not super tall. Right. Right, right. So it's, you know, kind of a, almost like an optical illusion that it's a long <laughs> yeah, exactly. sword. But so they're they're fighting and um what did you say that guy's name was? Stir. Stir. Stir knocks Longclaw clear out of John's hand. Oh my god. Horrifying sees them fighting right and she said beforehand that if it like he's mine you know any of you tries to kill him and <laughs> and it all kill you or whatever it was a great great line we'll talk about that later it is a great line yeah but you know what i was thinking when she sees them fighting and she seems mad but stir has never seen john snow before so right. how is he to know that that is the crow exactly exactly that egret wants to kill but you know she's she's in battle herself. She can't really go over there. She's picking people off. We right. can tell that she's quite a marksman with there's, the bow. There's an amazing shot where she's like like a cat, like bounding downwards and bouncing off roof, rooftops and yes. rolling and flipping and popping shots and tracking people with her bow and just beating them and in the dome piece. arrows out of corpses. And, yeah. you know, shooting, shooting like two in a row. And so good. we pan back over to Stir and John and they're wrestling for it. And John's holding his own. And that head butt on the anvil, the blacksmithing anvil, just he just got his bell rung. Oh, my God. The first time that I saw that, my heart sank. I thought that Jon Snow was about to get Sean Beaned. Because that would fucking, like, your head would be spinning out of control after that. I have a, an anvil, smaller one. And, uh, man, getting your head ahead against that thing. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm surprised he didn't get knocked clear out or his teeth yeah. are all intact, which, right. you know, again, kind of goes back to what we talked about in previous recordings of John maybe having some type of divine protection intervention. Or yeah. Um, but I mean, in this moment, John is just getting pummeled. I mean, Fucking completely trashed. pummeled by this guy. I mean, being punched left and right, being thrown to the ground, being, you know, thrown through the, the fire pit. <laughs> yeah. And I like this part because it's a coup back to when John was fighting Carl up at Craster's Keep. Carl fucking Tanner. Yes, because John spits in Stir's face. Right, just like throws- Carl spit in his face. Yes. And it, it was just a great reminder that John is learning how to be a fighter and not so much a a knight, if yes. you will. I feel his formal training is kind of like knightly. Right. You learned to fight like a nice little lord, didn't you? <laughs> yes, right in the face, exactly. you know? So Sort of bronze style. Uh, he's picking up some like street fighting and wildling fighting and it's making him more of a mixed martial artist, you could say. Yeah, because it's either fight with honor and die at this moment or spit in the, spit, you know, spit. In the face in of honor face and, and fight dirty. <laughs> survive. And it throws Stir off, you know, and 
Big kind time. of backs away, and that gives John just enough time to grab that hammer and just whack him straight in the head. Which was, <laughs> oh my word! Ball um, peen. Just brutal. Love it, and the, the great. It was acted really well too. Instant death as the hammer bashes Ugh. into his skull and sticks, and the guy's face just goes blank, and then he's kind of like tips over. Yeah, really well and done. It's deep in his skull. I mean, that was nasty. That's a nasty way to go. So awesome. Yeah. So that was that was my top five. I mean, I know I labeled it ghost because this whole kind of scene of him fighting stir starts with releasing ghost and them kind of fighting side by side, even though we don't really see much of ghost. We know he's there helping John. Totally. Yeah, it was great to see ghost. I hope we see a lot more of that in season eight. I think we will. I think they've been saving it. I think so, too. Yeah, I I love the dire wolves. Same here. So my number five is Janos Breaks. Okay, let me find that in my notes. Sure. Basically. Okay, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Do you want to say something? This is is part of my number four. Perfect. So we can uh, collab on this. Yep. Basically, in this episode, Janos loses his shit. There's a moment where... Alistair Thorne is needed down below when the wildlings are attacking from the south. And he tells him, you know, Janice, you have the wall as he goes. And Janice just can't handle this. He He's uh, talking about the Night's Watch as he's looking over the, the edge of the wall at the giants riding the mammoths towards the foundation of the wall. And he's ranting, no discipline, no training, gang of thieves, that's all this is. I commanded the city watch of King's Landing. Those men obeyed orders. And John is trying to snap him back into it. We can't just let them attack the gate, you know? And, There's uh, a giant sound there. Yeah. And he's like, there, there's bars, those bars, uh, the bars of those gates are four inches of cold rolled steel, you know, like we, like he was talking about last time. And yeah, there's, those are giants down there. No such thing as giants. A story for the children. And it's like a terrifying realization as we see that Janos just can't even see the truth before him that it's just not processing something is just not connecting <laughs> you know he's a total pussy he's total, wigging out yeah. like this i have that in my notes slint is wigging is like <laughs> yeah. my bullet point <laughs> he, he's like just losing it he's completely lost he's broken uh this is his broken man moment um okay. you could say so uh gren has a stroke of brilliance here he yes. runs towards the, the, the elevator and then runs back and <laughs> falsely claims, Brother Slip, we just got word that Alice, Sir Alistair needs you below. You're the most experienced man he's got, sir, and he needs you, buttering him up, you know. And <laughs> Slint's just out of it. Needed, needed below? Yes, yes, yes. The, <laughs> he starts to move <laughs> towards the elevator. Needed below. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even... Uh, doesn't even pass on leadership of the wall because he's just so out of it it's left to for to john to uh, take it for himself and there's an epic moment as janice goes out of sight and john turns back towards the front of the wall and starts stepping forward into position to take the lead and all the other men around the wall are looking to him for leadership <laughs> it's just a really really great moment and it's john's first opportunity to to take a position of real leadership among his brothers you know he's he's earned their trust from his various decisions and and 
actions um, leading up to this point. Even even Alistair mentions to him, you know, that you were right. We should have sealed the the gate when we had the chance. Yeah. And everybody knows that. Everybody on that wall knows that John was the only person that was saying, like, giving the right advice. And so they all look to him in this moment. It's really great. But uh, back to Janos, he goes down there and he's cowering behind the, behind the fence where John makes his his pose uh, at the beginning of that long shot we mentioned. Yep. Yep. And then he goes and decides to hide in the same little uh, compartment that Gilly is hiding in, and he goes in there and locks the door and looks over, and Gilly's looking at him. And it's just like, <laughs> like, what are you doing down yeah, here? <laughs> busted, you know. And he's just uh, cowering in the corner when Sam arrives in the morning and opens the door and gilly fierce as ever true wildling goes to attack as the door opens and whoa it's me it's me sam says (laughs) and uh he's surprised to find uh janos cowering as well yeah absolutely anything else you want to mention about janos that pretty much wraps all my notes about it i so why don't we just move right into my number four? Okay, take it away. Yeah, so I, you know, John, like you mentioned, uh, they immediately look to him for direction. Yeah. And I, I dubbed my number four stepping up as a leader. And so, like you said, this is his moment to kind of t- seize that, like, kind of like a carpe diem. <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> Moment for him. Sees but the carp. It felt really natural. Like he didn't even really hesitate to do it. Oh no. He he didn't look around to see if anyone else was going to step up. He just immediately slid right into that role like without even hesitating or thinking about the implications that that means as far as his future that we, you know, know in this rewatch of him becoming the Lord Commander. Mm-hmm. I'll get more into that in my uh, number one as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah, because he, it's in his blood, you know, to to be a leader. And so I think he really just stepped up and they're, they are looking down and they start seeing the climbers. And John says, you know, they won't summit before dawn. And Great Ed's line. Like, How do you know that? And he's like, well, I've made that climb. And Ed in great, you know, sarcastic fashion, you know, I think they're in a bigger <laughs> hurry than you were. <laughs> Ed's always got something funny to say. Yeah. Great character. And this is actually when we get the giant shooting his arrow. <laughs> yeah, that's my uh, my number four, I think, or number three or something. Okay. Yeah. So I won't go part too of much it, at into least. it. But it was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. That thing just shoots through the roof of their little watchtower. And the first one just flies right by. And then you see John, they're scrambling because they can see him loading another one. And it just it just launches that guy. <laughs> and it's such an intense moment of this episode because he literally gets clearly shot over the wall <laughs> and lands straight in the middle of the battle in the castle down below. I'm not sure <laughs> how wide the wall is in the show at the top, but on the in the books, I think you could ride like 15 horses abreast at the top or something. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's as wide in the show because like 
I, when they're up there, it looks fairly narrow. Right. Um, you know, maybe like four horses wide, but it <laughs> he just when he lands, there's a guy in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Torch in one hand, sword in the other hand, both pointing upwards. Yeah, and he's like, what the fuck was that? He sort of just stops for like half a second and then turns and keeps running. Runs off. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking great comedic moment. Yeah. What, imagine what's running through his head at that point, though. He doesn't see the giants on the other side. He doesn't know what's going on. All of a sudden, this guy just lands impaled on like an eight, nine foot long arrow <laughs> and is just dangling there. And he's just got to be like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. So I just found that as horrible as it sounds, it was like almost kind of a comedic coup. Like the guy was running, stops and looks, and he's like, what the fuck? And then just keeps running. <laughs> Totally. I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't know what did that, but yeah. So th- I mean, that pretty much wraps up my number four. Nice. What's your number four? My number four is uh, giants in general. And uh, the first part of it is the giant and the arrow, <laughs> which you were just talking about. Oh, okay. okay. That mega arrow, man, and such speed and trajectory. It just, like you said, blasts apart that wooden overhead structure. And that guy just soars man just <laughs> impaled on that thing and and the, the sound effects of the wind <laughs> <laughs> oh man i'll have to listen back for that i i, I didn't uh take note of it it's uh but yeah i oh, can imagine really? like he's like whistling through the air <laughs> <laughs> great so funny and yeah like the first shot we get of the giants one one giant riding the mammoth the other giant mm-hmm. walking next to him uh just riding out from the trees and you're just like oh shit this is about to get crazy i love that they put mammoths in this show yeah I totally thought that was so cool yeah mammoths are great uh, so then um the next part of the giants my giants point is the ballad of mag and gren you could call it and it starts out with uh, the giants, two giants and the, the mammoth sort of walking down to the opening of the gate. And they smash apart some of the metal blocking the inner steel beams or uh, structure. And they attach a mammoth to it with hooks on a, on a chain. And they start just pulling on it. And uh, in the middle of this, they're dropping all these like uh these barrels full of rocks and stuff which are like banging all over the place and uh john sees it happening down there and this is one of the got to be one of the the most difficult parts of being a leader john finds out really quickly sometimes the people you trust who are best at at something that you can rely on you might have to send them on what amounts to um suicide missions yeah, yeah. which is so sad so the uh, John's like, the outer gate won't hold. He takes Gren, take five men, hold the inner gate. Aye, you know, and he's, he, they kind of like, they're paused for a second, looking at each other in the eye, and John, you know, tells them, hold the gate. You know, if they make it through, and Gren says, they won't, and rushes off and grabs a couple people and grabs five guys and goes down there. But John sort of just stands there for a few seconds afterwards, just like letting it letting it sink in what he's just done. A couple yeah. blinks showing his uh you know, his that he's feeling feeling it. Humanity. And, yeah, knows what's <laughs> knows what's gonna happen. And that's just uh, you know, one of the burdens of leadership, sending your closest friends to die. 
on occasions potentially, which is horrible. Um, which may be um, part of the reason why he, when he becomes leader officially, he sort of begins to distance himself from his friends a little bit, um, maybe because he knows that he may be in this position again and it doesn't want it to hurt any more than it, <laughs> any more than it has to. Yeah, this is actually, um, I have some friends that have served in the armed forces and have done multiple tours overseas and uh, one of the co- the common threads that I've talked to them about is when they come back, you know, it's when they call them like new blood or new meat come into the camps. At first, you're like really excited to get to know the new soldiers coming in to replace the ones that are going back to the States. And, you know, when you spend enough time overseas, a lot of those friends would, you know, die. And so they would be really eager to meet them at first, but then towards the end of your tour that you just, you really just try not to have relationships with any of them because it's just harder when they don't come back from, you know, the missions that they're on. So it's, it's sad. It's really, really rough. Yeah. Like you get really excited because you got new people to talk to new people to get to know and hang out with. And, you know, just with, it being war and life's lost, they just they learned to kind of shell up and just not try to get to know the new people coming on because it's just that much harder to you know grieve if if they don't come back. Yeah, so. it sucks. It's really brutal. Yeah, um, and you know this goes back to Alistair just saying to John, you know you. You can say it. We should have sealed the tunnel. Yeah. He's really diplomatic and, at that point, too. John is. Yeah. And I think they're. And John gives him kind of some credit here. He goes, you know, it's. It was a hard decision to make. And Alistair, you know, said, we should have sealed the tunnel. It was a hard decision. You know what being a leader means? It means basically ignoring every twat that second guesses you. Cause once you second guess yourself, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It, it means that the person in charge gets second guessed by every clever little twat with a mouth. But if he starts second guessing himself, that's the end for him, for the clever little twats, for everyone. This is not the end. Not for us. Not if you lot yeah. do your duty for however long it takes to beat them back. And then you get to go on hating me, and I get to go on wishing your wildling whore had finished the job. Had finished the job, yeah. So this kind of echoes, you know, John stepping up as a leader. He's going to have to start making decisions like this. So I think in the moment, he was being kind of diplomatic towards Alistair, because it probably was a difficult decision to make. And as much as Alistair hates John, and John dislikes Alistair, they had kind of a moment here of respect for each other that Alistair kind of in a roundabout way admits to John, look, dude, you were right. I was just being an asshole because I didn't want you to be right. Mm-hmm. But now that we're sitting here with a hundred thousand men beating down our door and the giant just ripping his hand through that wall and bending that steel pretty quickly, it just goes to show that, you know, decisions have to be made and John, uh, John like has the opportunity to rub it in, and he doesn't either. He just says, yeah. "It was a difficult decision either way, sir." Which it was because mm-hmm. 
to Alistair, Alistair makes a good point too. You start second guessing yourself as a leader, you're just going to get overrun. You're just going to get overthrown. And yeah, I don't know if I agree with his sentiment fully. What I have, uh, what I, my thoughts are like that it, as a leader, it's critical to be adaptive and to be open to new information and to to listen to the people around you just to find the best best strategy, no matter what it is. And one of the things to do is to be able to realize if you're wrong and to be able to backtrack so you don't send everybody off the off a cliff, basically. Basically what Alistair does here. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I, I guess you could say that's the difference between Alistair's leadership and Danny's leadership. You know, that she's fluid and can change her mind. How she, you know, listens, but also stays true to what she believes, but she incorporates the advice into what she's doing. Mm -hmm. But she's also not afraid to say, nope, I'm going to do it my way. Right. So, yeah, I think that's all I had on Alistair and John. Cool. So um, back to um, Mag and Gren. Next, John employs the fire barrels. I think... um, Maybe Ed actually, who who sets the, that in motion, but as the um, as Mag and the the other giant are trying to pull this door open, they start dropping the oil barrels down, and boom, they explode, and one catches the mammoth on fire, <laughs> and he starts running, and uh, one of the giants is running to catch catch him, and somebody shoots a ballista from the top of the wall and just goes right through the giant's heart. And uh, he drops to his knees, and this enrages Mag the Mighty. And Mag grabs the base of that gate and is about to have a giant-sized adrenaline-fueled rage. <laughs> yeah, I said he's full of rage, and oh, he yeah. lifts the gate. Fucking rage. Rage, rage, fucking rage! <laughs> and uh, so... Gren and crew are in the tunnel at this point, and one guy starts freaking out. How are we going to stop that? Shot 20 arrows in him already! And Gren's holding down the fort. You heard John, you know, we hold the gate. John Snow's not Lord Commander! And he's arguing, we hold the gate! And uh, Mag, a.k.a. Ronnie Coleman, you hear, Lightweight, baby! <laughs> As he's lifting up that gate <laughs> up onto his shoulders, and he crawls under it. And comes into the tunnel and boom, the gate falls down in the background. And he just starts charging towards the uh, towards the inner gate. And one guy's like, mother, save me. Father, save me. And Gren's like, the gods aren't down here. It's the six of us. You hear me? And he starts reciting the night, the night's watch vows, which is always like one of the most intense moments of the episode, you know? Night yeah. gathers, and now my oh, watch begins. I get goosebumps every, every time. Yeah. It shall not end until my death. And they start one by one, joining into the chorus. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. More start chanting. I shall wear no crown and win no glory. Altogether, I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness, and they un- unsheath their swords all together in one motion. Yes, I love Magus that. Magus is running so and bad. charging. Yeah. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the Night's Watch for this night and all the nights to come. And 
boom, Mag comes crashing into the gate, and they char- they scream and let a battle cry out as they all collide, and it cuts away, and we don't see that scene again until John and Sam find the remains, the bloody remains of Mag and Gren and company, and John says, they held the gate. Yeah. And closes Gren's eyes. So sad. (laughs) The look of pain on his face was so... Yep, and you know he knew it the whole time that that's what was going to happen. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so, yeah, the ballad of Mag and Gran, I thought that was a really good scene overall. Uh, the little storyline all contained within this episode. Um, he goes on to tell Sam, get some brothers down here to help you. We need to burn the bodies. And that's it. But we get to hear a little bit more about it next episode when John treats with Mance Raider. And they share a drink in honor of uh, Mag and Gren. <laughs> yeah, that was a sweet sentiment in the next episode for sure. Yep. <laughs> Remember how funny that is? Uh, he's like the the you know the king of the giants killed by a, a random farm boy. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of true. Yeah, so crazy. Right. So, so that have, was your number four. Yep, that wraps up my number four, and uh, we covered yours as well, right? Yes. Um, did we cover your number three yet? No, it's a very short number three, though. All right, let's hear it. So I dubbed this the delegation, and it's when John gives Ed the wall because nice. he needs to go down and fuck some shit up. Yeah. And <laughs> I I truly believe that in order to be a great leader, you need to learn to delegate. Definitely. Because you can't do everything yourself. This is something that, you know, we see down in King's Landing with the small council that it's in place to help, you know, delegate like the master of coin, the master of ships, and just assist the king in all of his kingly duties. And Danny has her little group of people that help her with decision making and has the second sons going to help keep the peace in Astapor and Young Kai and Marine. So John in this this episode is, you know, really stepping up in into his leadership skills. So Absolutely. we see him kind of seamlessly step into this role without even hesitating when um Slint goes crazy. He <laughs> does it Without skipping a beat, I mean, he really just takes it on. And again, for my number three, labeling it the delegation, without even hesitation, he knows that he's needed down below. He knows that he's a great fighter, and that's where all the fighting is happening now. So he delegates the wall siege to Ed, who he trusts and knows can handle it. So we start that actually it's Sam that comes up in the elevator and gets to John and he goes, sir, Alistair has fallen. The castle won't stand much longer. And that's when John has to, again, make kind of a split decision. He doesn't have time to think about, okay, who can I give the wall to that I trust? He just does it without even skipping a beat. He goes, Ed, you have the wall. And Ed's face is like, what? (laughs) Deer in headlights. What are you talking about? And, he gives him really 
simple, quick instructions. You know, if they try mm-hmm. the mammoths again, drop the oil on them. If they, if the climbers get too high, drop the sides on them. Oh, I love that part. Cause it's like, uh, you know, the concept of Chekhov's gun. Yes. This is yes. Chekhov's scythe where the scythe is mentioned. So, you know, we're going to see the scythe at some point in this episode. Yeah. So- and it does not let us down. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I, I think I have that in my notes somewhere. But, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you know, so Ed actually steps up fairly quickly. I mean, he's definitely more hesitant. And this is a great contrast between John stepping up without hesitation and someone like Ed stepping up but has hesitation. But he does it much better than Janice. <laughs> oh, completely. He snaps it, it's into just it showing quickly. that John is natural. Right, and totally. While Ed is stepping into the role and accepting the role, he's like, okay, I have to breathe. If we're going to die tonight, we might as well have some fun. So let's light the fuckers up. And then he gets <laughs> intense with it. So, yeah, he does um, a good job. You know, great choice by John to choose Ed. And Ed actually does an incredible job, mm-hmm. which we can, you know, talk about, I'm sure. But that's. It's a short number three, but I thought it was a really important role or important piece of this episode in John's development as a leader. Definitely. I agree. I also love the actor that portrays Dolores Ed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's funny, man. He's perfect. <laughs> John ends up sort of giving him the whole nice watch when he leaves, too. Remember? Oh, yeah. Who knows he's, if he gets elected to be the official Lord Commander, but he sort of becomes the acting Lord Lord Commander, I believe. Yes, he does. That's right. And I think I think his brothers respect him and like him. You know, he's not a dislikable character. Right. So I'm sure that the brothers of the Night's Watch are okay of Ed being acting Lord Commander. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> um, for, uh, here's another reason to read the books. Dolores Ed is just a consistent source of hilarious um, lines and dolorous humor. Uh, it's It's great. Yes, he definitely is. <laughs> yep, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so that was my number three. Do you have any notes on this particular scene? Um, I think we pretty much covered it. Okay, what's your number three? My number three is Tormund Giant's Bane. Okay. Who, I yes. just fucking love Tormund. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's one of the best characters on the show. And this episode, he really shines big time. So in the bear. Yeah, he's rambling about fucking a bear. And uh, you know, did I ever tell you about her? My Sheila. <laughs> that was a night to remember. Of course I'd had a good bit to drink. Her fangs were sharp, but she knew how to use them. <laughs> Etc. She was no ordinary beast. And the whole time I'm thinking because, you know, um, Egret, you know, she's like, you know, I know you never fucked a bear. <laughs> right now, you know I don't you want never to th- fucked a bear. <laughs> yeah. Right now, I don't want to think about the bear you never fucked. I just want to think about putting arrows through crows. So, she, there, she, in the next sentence, she's using a coded language, to, like a, a an animal referring to a human, and the crows talking about the Night's Watch people. So, I'm wondering if when Tormund is talking about fucking a bear. If he's referring to fucking a Mormont woman. Oh, interesting. Just think about it. Um, he likes Brienne because she's a big, badass, fighter, Early. warrior woman. That's exactly 
what the women of Bear Island are like. Big, tough, rugged, you know, rural. Burly. <laughs> what? Burly. Burly, yeah. Just burly fighting bitches, you know. <laughs> and uh, they're like Tormund's dream. <laughs> you know? so, so I could imagine this referring to him having an encounter with a... Uh, you know, maybe they were, came south of the wall to do some pillaging or something and ended up at Bear Island somehow or caught uh, more months on patrol or something like that. But, uh, it, it, you know, it, I don't know. It just just an interesting thought. I thought that it would be funny if it was like Daisy Mormont or something like that. Yeah, interesting. I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. talking in code and these animals. Yeah, I can see that. That's, yeah. that's actually... Not a that's not a far cry because right. clearly he didn't fuck a bear. Yeah, so like, like an his, actual bear. <laughs> yeah, his line, uh, her fangs were sharp, but she knew how to use them. You know, it could refer to like the tenacious, f- like fighting attitude of the Mormont women. You know, and she was strong and dangerous, but she knew how to like you know use her her strength and everything for different purposes as well. As well, you know what I mean? <laughs> her claws. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Just a just a funny little thought. So next we see Tormund. He's rushing the southern gate, climbing up the wall, um, scaling it on a, with a rope. He finishes his climb and starts just destroying everyone in his path. And his motions are very animalistic and just ferocious, like yes. like Mike Tyson crossed with a Wolverine. And uh, just very well played. Like, this actor is perfect for this job. As he's just thrashing about with his his cutlass sword, or whatever you would call this thing. It's shorter than Longclaw. Way shorter. And he's just... Oh, man. Just swinging that thing around all over the place. Just fucking raging. Fucking rage! And <laughs> I have that in my notes a bunch, that he's just raging and raging. So he uh, he's f- f- just murdering all these dudes, and Alistair sees him and knows he's about to have to fight him, and he's just viciously wielding that sword, and he's fa- fighting with Alistair, Alistair, and they're sort of going back and forth, and Alistair well, is toe to toe. I love yeah. it. And Alistair is a formidable warrior. Um, say yes. what you will about him, but he's a good fighter, and he's big, and he's like leaning out around the the support column pieces of wood like swinging around trying to hide behind things and simultaneously strike Tormund but Tormund is just too fast and and good and he ends up ducking and slicing Alistair's gut and Alistair has to just try to escape he drops and rolls down off of that platform that they're on and gets whisked away to safety and he's still screaming his head off like given direction to yeah totally yeah he's still in it like he wouldn't leave if he didn't have to. They're dragging him off the battlefield, you know. Yes, he sure were. So Tormund, as as uh, Alistair's falling, he's got sort of like a reverse downward grip on his sword, and he's like, ah, like stabbing down, trying to get him. And then he hold he continues to hold that sword in the reverse grip. So if his fist is like outwards, the blade is going down, and he's mm-hmm. doing these. He starts running back down that little pat that little um, walkway that they're on with the railing and somebody tries to fight him and he's just whap, 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 just bringing that sword, just like an, making like X shaped swings where he's swinging downward and across his body. Then the blade goes up and it swings downward and across the other side of his body. And 
it's the timing and the motion just looks fucking vicious and he is just raging rage rage again just amazing convincing you can tell this is what he lives for yes he is in his element just just thrashing and just wildly swinging and it's just beautiful like some some fighters on this show are polished and and like their technique is like very precise Tormund is like the example is like the the epitome of the wildling just thrashing about and just like utterly ferocious <laughs> yeah he's a stark amazing. contrast to like gray worm with the unsullied like right. the precision movements or and- even john snow even John, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just like really impressive to watch Tormund swinging his blade around. It's fucking awesome. Um, and he, you know, then he gets stuck with an arrow at one point and just keeps fighting and fighting, even though there's an arrow in his shoulder. And eventually, after you know, John kills Stir and the battle's pretty much over. Tormund is like one of the few wildlings left standing, and he ends up being subdued on that staircase, <laughs> which is great. You know, John tries to uh, tell him to just give up. Tormund, it's over. Let it end. And Tormund's like, this is how a man ends, you know, and just keeps thrashing with his blade. So they put a couple more arrows in him and kind of force him to his knees, basically. And then they, John instructs them to put him in chains and says they're going to question him later. And uh, they they lift him up and start dragging him and, He's moving backwards with one leg kind of limping, but I just, it's another funny little performance by the actor here. He's like perfectly steps up all the little steps to keep his balance as they're dragging him backwards. And his, his face is just locked on John, but his legs are like <laughs> moving along. It's just kind of funny. Uh, so he's like, we should have, you know, I should have thrown you from the top of the wall, boy. And John's like, I, you should have. <laughs> just kind of a cool moment <laughs> yeah for sure and that wraps up torment for this episode yeah Tor- it's over let it end it's yeah. <laughs> great uh yeah so yeah that pretty much wraps up my number three awesome how about your numero dos my numero dos is the beginning of the battle so we get the beginning of the battle and we begin kind of with the owl up on the top, the guys warging into him. and Love that part. We see the owl land and then it cuts yes. to the warg. So we know they're spying on him. Really cool. Yeah, because Mance has told him, you know, send your owl up to the wall every night. You know, when it comes time, I'm going to light the biggest fire the North has ever seen. Yeah. And so i have it in my notes too like if he's working into an owl and flying up to the wall every night wouldn't he kind of figure out that there aren't a thousand men there yeah they must know already because at some point um Egrit comes back and says most of the men are up on top of the wall so if if she knows that most of them are up there that means they must have an idea of how many there are in total yeah because i was thinking that because she didn't see so many people down below, she assumed most of the men were up mm, true. the wall. True, yeah, maybe. So she doesn't, um, necessarily know, have, she doesn't necessarily have to know the total number. She just knows that 
There's only a few down below. There's only a few down below, and she's like, one fat guy and one guy loading arrows, which she's obviously talking about Sam and Pip. (laughs) Oh, yeah, true. So I thought that was kind of funny. And then we kind of pan over back to the Night's Watch, and the horns start blowing. And they're up at the top. Oh, it's so eerie. (laughs) It's so eerie. And... Um, so we, we pan up to the top and Alistair decides that he needs to go down below because they're attacking the Southern gate. They're attacking the Northern gate. And this is when he actually gives Slint the wall and Slint just stands there again. This is mirroring kind of John just seamlessly stepping into this leadership role versus some pussy like Slint. (laughs) <laughs> who just kind of stood there and was like, I don't know what to do. I mean, he's always boasting about how he commanded the city watch of King's Landing, but... Yeah, and he never had to do any fighting, apparently. He never really had to do any fighting or, like, any type of tactical, like, <laughs> military military stuff, because Alistair comes back and he goes, What are you fucking waiting for? Los! <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just love that, and the... the um the scene of Ingrid and the wildlings running up to the southern gate. I mean, she is just lighting people up. And we we get Pip and Sam and their little dialogue, you know, and Pip goes, Sam, I think we're going to die. <laughs> and it was just kind of a sad, you know, knowing that Pip does die later in this scene, in this episode, it right. was just kind of like, oh yeah, honey, you are. <laughs> it was kind of a mix of um, of foreshadowing of his death and also like a slight moment of levity because uh, Sam turns it into a joke by replying, you know, he's like, I think Sam, I think we're gonna die, you know, if you keep missing, we will, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know. Torches are flickering, arrows are flying, and then we kind of jump back over to the north, the north side of the wall, and that's when we see the mammoth come out with the giants, and you just know, and Alistair's face kind of says it all. He's just like, fuck. Mm-hmm. John was right. I like we're pretty much dead men. And I love in this moment that Alistair's up there and they're still kind of getting prepared for the siege and and Gren drops one of the barrels. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's such a funny moment. <laughs> and Alistair gives them all kind of his harsh lesson and following direction. Does knock fucking mean draw? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it just my my whole number four is just kind of the back and forth you realize as a viewer that they're kind of being squeezed. We have this band of wildlings with Tormund and the Thens and Egret on the south side, and they're just picking people off. I mean, they're pretty brutal. I mean, for a hundred men, I mean, they're dropping like flies for sure. And then you're panning oh over to the north side and you're realizing kind of the magnitude of seeing what a hundred thousand people look like how far they span because when they walk out with the torches i mean it's miles and miles coming through the woods totally they're all kind of screaming and 
they finally, the Night's Watch releases the first set of arrows and they pick off like maybe a half a dozen, a dozen wildlings. Mm. And they've probably wasted a hundred arrows doing that. And they've only killed 12, let's say. And there's <laughs> just out of range. You know, there's just, they are so badly outnumbered. So I, I think, you know, Alistair gets down to the base of the wall and he's like, you know, those are Thens over there. Like, do you want to fill the belly of a Then tonight? Yeah, he actually has a really good motivational speech. Say what you will about him. He's horrible, but he's, he's good in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Willis! A hundred generations have defended this castle. She's never fallen before. She will not fall tonight. Those are things on our walls. They eat the flesh of the men they kill. Do you want to fill the belly of a thin tonight? No! Tonight we fight. And when the sun rises, I promise you, Castle Black will stand. Yeah! The Night's Watch will stand. Yeah! With me now. with me now now with me and they all like charge and they're like wow like let's yeah. go fucking kill some people and Epic. so you know we really get to see kind of his battle experience which i really enjoyed we get to see the way the wildlings fight which is just with true abandon i mean they just they have no mercy they leave nothing behind and the thens man they are just rolling over people Ollie is wigging out. Yeah, he's, he's sitting there with his hands covering his ears. <laughs> and I feel so sorry for him because the, that guy that gets killed right next to him when the blood splatters on his face, that's the same <laughs> yep. way his mom got killed. Right. So I think he's and just, just... by the same people. <laughs> by the same people. He's so, having flashbacks. PTSD is just taking hold for time, him. Big time. So it's just... I, f I thought it was important to have the beginning of this battle in my top five. But, you know, like we talked about earlier, this is a really hard one to dissect into a top five. Yeah. Because it's really just, like, we could just ro keep rolling and talking about it. But I'll, I'll stop there as far as it being kind of my number two. All right. <laughs> <laughs> What's your number two? Mine is the Ghost Maester. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Which is, it's just that scene where Sam, after they're talking about, um, he's asking John what it's like to be with a woman. And he's like, oh, I'm not a bleeding poet. you know. She had red hair. <laughs> how, how big were her feet? You know, like, tell me something relevant, uh, John. Which is kind of funny. Uh, great little moment in dialogue between the two of them. And uh, so John relieves Sam and he tells him to go get some sleep. And instead he goes to the library to read. And Maester Eamon just fucking creeps on Samwell like a like a ghost. <laughs> Must have scared a poop nugget out of him, like for sure. <laughs> <you know? laughs> what is it that couldn't wait until morning, Charlie? And Samwell's surprised that he knows that it's him. But who else would uh, be wasting candles to read in the middle of the night? But Samwell Tarly, right? So, yes, shows you how smart Eamon is. But uh, I just love this whole scene. There's so much to break down through all the dialogue. Um, there's just so many great lines and everything. 
He's talking about the irony of his age and the situation. He's like, I know my way around this library better than any other place in Castle Black. And it's just, he says, thousands of books and no eyes to read them. And that's just like a brutal idea, like just horrible. Oh, I know. And uh, old age has is such irony or something like that. Yeah, old age is such a is a wonderful source of ironies, if nothing yes. else. Uh, it's very beautifully written, and uh, so they he goes on and they're talking about. He, this is when he brings up love being the death of duty again. And he tells uh, he's, he tells Sam, I told that to your friend Jon Snow once. He didn't listen and neither did you. <laughs> and I have written that you don't need eyes to see that Sam is in love with Gilly. Even Maester Aemon can see that, you know? Yes. And even Jon knows it. And Jon knows nothing. Hell, Jon even thought they were banging, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. So, uh... He's like, I know you love uh, that that wildling. He's like, I, I don't love her. Yes, you do. No. Yes, you do. I heard it in your voice. Um, the, the first time that you brought her to me, and uh, which is why you've abandoned your watch at top of the wall to come here and read about the terrible things that may have happened to her. You know. <laughs> and uh, he says, I was in love once, and Sam is like shocked by that you were and he's like come on you can imagine all, all of the all manner of horrors befalling that poor girl but you can't imagine that an old person was once more or less like you i know and sam's like i'm really sorry you're yeah. right <laughs> and this is when uh Eamon has his heisenberg moment <laughs> he sure does you know, do you know who i was before i came here what i could have been if i'd only just said the word of course you do and sam is just kind of looking and this is you know where you should have done the heisenberg thing say my name you know? <laughs> would have fit perfectly Targaryen. <laughs> exactly you're goddamn right total fucking heisenberg moment where he's just so fucking badass and he's like laying down the law for a second and in a way which he normally doesn't do which i thought was really cool and shows sort of the diversity of, of this character that you don't really get a, a handle on normally so he talks about how he met many girls when he was Aemon Targaryen. A future king always does. Some of them were quite forward in their attempts to win my affections. One of them succeeded. Do you know, have any idea who maybe it, it might have been? No, I have no idea. Because I was thinking that it sort of parallels a story that was told pretty recently about how one woman was betrothed to marry one brother but on her way to meet Elena? him, yeah, she got lost and found Elena? her way into a different brother's bedroom, right? A Targaryen. Do you think that Aemon's too old, though? I mean, I know Elena's old, but Aemon is supposed to be, like, over 100 years old. In the old. books, he is. But on the show, oh, they removed okay. a couple generations from the lineage. Interesting. So Aemon is much younger on the show. So, yeah, one of them succeeded in winning her affection, in, in his affection. So I was thinking, maybe this is Elena. Maybe it's his bedroom that she... Uh, and maybe that was a huge reason that he ended up going to the Citadel and taking the black because she married somebody else. No, I, th I, th I what I would think is that she wanted to be queen. So she found her way into his bedroom and then oh, when when yes. she's like poo-pooing like oh it was all the rage marrying a targaryen i'd 
but but she's like claiming like oh no big deal like I I found you know I it, I didn't think it would be a good idea anyway you know she's kind of like downplaying it down I think she's downplaying her disappointment because Eamon instead of deciding to marry her and take the kingship like she was hoping for he decided to go to the citadel essentially spurning her and taking away her chance of being queen and the brother who she was probably originally supposed to marry ended up being king probably so she probably she's probably really pissed about this and instead of showing how pissed off she was she just kind of poo-poos the targaryens in general and says that she didn't wouldn't have wanted to marry a targaryen anyway basically interesting so uh, i like it yeah i thought this was kind of funny so he goes on uh, sam's like who was she and Eamon, ah, and his his eyes light up, even though they're blind, you know, in an amazing performance, and I could tell you everything about her, who she was, how we met, the color of her eyes, the shape of her nose, I can see her right in front of me, she's more real than you are, and he sort of laughs at the truth of that statement, in a brilliant performance, and I was thinking about it, and he's right, uh, to, to him, She's a person. He can see her features and her details, and he knows her body in and out, you know, but he he has like a full picture (laughs) of this person. Whereas Sam, on the other hand, is a faceless voice to Aemon Targaryen, a shadow being, you know, who Aemon can't fully conceptualize because he's never seen them. Therefore, the more fully formed entity in the mind of Aemon Targaryen is this girl from his youth who he has seen and remembers. So it's pretty interesting just that that line of she's more real than you are because he's actually seen her whereas Sham is just, Sham. Sam is just like a figment, you know, like a a fleeting ghost he's person. A voice. You know? Just yeah. a voice, a disembodied voice, you could say, yeah. So um, he goes on, we could spend all night trading tales of lost loves. And Sam smiles, probably wishing he had some stories to trade of lost loves. <laughs> and then uh, Eamon <laughs> switches it on him. Nothing makes the past a sweeter place to visit than the prospect of imminent death. <laughs> and Sam's, Sam's smile just drops at the realization of, oh yeah, we're going to probably die. We're all going to die. <laughs> and then I love I love Eamon. He goes, go to bed, Charlie. Yeah. And Sam's like, how am I supposed to go to bed after that? <laughs> and blows out the light. Yeah, that was fucking great. So I just loved everything about that scene. I thought the writing was brilliant. thought that uh, the actor who portrayed Eamon Targaryen was just magnificent in his performances and the nuances and the way that he delivers the lines and uh, his you know facial expressions and the way he laughs after certain moments and it, it's really convincing it's a really convincing performance and um, it just turned out beautifully so yeah that's my number it two. really was I just love that that's scene. a really good number two Thanks. I like that so what's your number one my number one is egret's death oh We'll go about that. 
so we start, I'm going to start this um, number one when John just finishes killing the Fen and he turns around to start fighting someone else and she's there with her bow drawn. Yeah. And you think that he's like safe, like he just killed this guy and he's going to go on and do something else and then boom, he's right in Grit's line of sight. <laughs> yep, and he kind of, you know, takes a half step back and he catches his breath and just instinctually like there's almost like a moment of relief yeah. that washes over his face and he's that smile that he gives her oh he just can't help but smile he can't help but smile to see there her face is. again he's relieved i think the relief is that she's alive mm -hmm. and he smiles and she's kind of twitching she's trying not to yeah, show she her had, like a flicker of smile comes across her mouth too as it's twitching but she's still angry and yep. she you know, hesitates she's she's they're just having that quiet moment of just staring at each other it's like what are we gonna do like we're fighting on opposite sides your bow is drawn Should i we think fuck a fight well i think john <laughs> is actually still unarmed yeah in this moment because he used the hammer to kill the then which is yep. in the then's head and long claws in the mud long claws like laying somewhere so, so it could he's be seen as dishonorable unarmed. to kill him yeah and so then we get the arrow from Ollie uh, right through her. It's not a killing. It's not an immediate killing shot. So she's in pain. And that sound she makes is the like, right. Oh my God. And Johnny like, stitches tears come to his eyes at this moment. Yes. For sure. Whereas I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> There's it, still a chance for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's interesting too. She gets hit and drops and then it, you can like blurry in the distance coming into focus is Ollie similar to how um, Pip gets hit with the arrow and drops and Sam ducks down to help him and blurred in the distance coming into focus is a grit similar yeah, type thing. Absolutely. And, and Ollie, you know, what goes around they, comes around, bitch. They make icon. John makes contact with Ollie and Ollie kind of nods at him. Like I saved you. <laughs> John's because like, fuck you. I know Ollie doesn't realize that John's in love with this girl, and he just knows that Egret killed his father. You know, so he thinks he's doing John a, a service, and John's just like, "Oh, motherfucker! Like, god damn it!" So he runs over to her and starts cradling her, and you know, he goes, "Don't talk." And she goes, "We should have stayed in that cave." And John is still kind of smiling at her and crying. And he goes, you know, we'll go back there. And then her tagline, which drives me crazy. I, I felt like it kind of cheesed the scene up a little bit. When she, her dying words are, you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> She's right, and, though. They're never going back to that cave. No, I know. I think she's just said it so many times before that it became kind of more like a tagline at this point. You'll like the, the book version better then. In the series. Yeah, I I just felt like this scene might have been a little bit stronger without it. It's a very powerful scene, don't get me wrong. It's one of my favorite, actually, 
um, in this episode and if not in the series because I, I have a note that they actually use slow motion after yes. she dies and he's rocking her. One of the only times in the series that they use I, slow I was just going to say they don't use it very often. They use it again in the Battle of the Bastards. Yep, when he pulls out the sword and all the yep. horses are riding towards him. Yep. <laughs> and they use it very... Sparingly, for sure. Sparingly, for sure. And I actually appreciate that because I think slow-mo can be overdone in a lot of things to accentuate certain aspects of a scene or an episode that it's basically kind of like a cop-out to make it more intense than it is versus actually just making the scene as intense as possible in real time. Hmm. But I really enjoyed that slow rocking and the battle behind them and all the flames around them. And there's just that quiet moment of him and he's rocking her and he's pulling her up into him and just burying his face in her. And it's just... It's really sad. And the the din of battle fades in the background, and you're left with yes. a moment of swelling, a swelling horn with strings, and just the, the a, a picture of love, even amidst the chaos and hatred of battle. That's just like a stunning visual. They're in their own moment in time, mm-hmm. and it's just he's giving her that respect and love, and you know she clearly still loves him, and he, I think that is good closure for him that you know she's like we should have stayed in that cave that's basically her telling him like i still love you i still think about you Mm -hmm. so i thought this was really important to put as my number one because it really it's really beautiful between the two of them it's great editing by the showrunners it's just great cinematography in the background I, I mean, it's a really sad scene, but it's just really beautiful all at the same time. And I I also feel that Egret's death propels John to have a little bit harder of a heart and prepare himself for leadership. I think if she was still sure. kind of around and he didn't experience the death of a love, that he would still be a little bit soft. And this again is his kind of i guess it's his really defining episode is stepping into a leadership role we know that he's been kind of preparing for that role but this is his launch into actually becoming lord commander of the night's watch totally yeah so that's my number one nice good one what about yours oh you want to know do you well hold on one second we'll be right back with my number one Thanks for tuning in to Game of Microphones. If you'd like to help us keep the torch lit through the long night, you can add fuel to the fire by going to gameofmicrophones.com and clicking our Amazon link at the bottom of the page. It's the same low prices for you, and Game of Microphones gets a little finder's fee from Amazon for sending you their way. You can also become a patron of Game of Microphones at patreon.com gompodcast or at paypal.me gompodcast. And links to both of those are at gameofmicrophones.com. Enjoy the show. My number one is Heroes' Choices, or okay. the lack thereof. Ooh. So Sam gets Gilly when she finally arrives, and we have two two sets of lovers reunited in this episode, as Sam and Gilly are brought back together, and John and Agrit are brought back together. Each of the pairs, one of whom 
assumes the other to be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. And one sort of ends with a, has a happy ending. The other ends really tragically, as we just discussed with uh, Igrit's death. But uh, Sam uh, brings Gilly down to hide in, in the larder and tells her, you'll be safe here, etc. And uh, he, she's trying to convince him to stay with her. And he, this is one of his moments, you know, where he really steps up. Um, you won't matter up there. You will down here. And he stops her. I'm a man of the Night's Watch, Gilly. I made a promise to defend the wall, and I have to keep it, because that's what men do. And as he's saying this, he has conviction in his eyes. Like, she is not going to change his mind about this. And in this moment, Samuel Tarley is no longer a coward. No, he's not. You know, now he has something to fight to protect. And uh, <laughs> it's this fucking amazing scene. She she tells him, promise me you won't die. <laughs> And uh-huh. there was no way that I thought they were going to do this. It's this is last week they referenced the Princess Bride with Oberyn Martell. You raped her, <laughs> you murdered her, you killed her children. I'm Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Now you will die. You know. And this week it's a, this is a total totally referencing a scene from Team America, <laughs> World Police. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the girls telling uh, the main character. Like about this horror story, sad story from her life or something, and she's like, "Just promise me you won't. You'll never die, you know." And it's obviously it's something you can't promise something somebody that you'll never no. die. But the camera—he's an actor, so the camera cuts to him, and his eyes are just steely blue, and his face is totally serious. Serious. I promise, I will never die. God, I'm so confused. It's too soon to be having feelings for you. Maybe. Feelings are feelings because we can't control them. But I have to control them, because I can't go through losing somebody again. It's too painful. So, so what? You're just going to shut down? I really like you. There's no chance we can ever be together? Only if you could promise me you'll never die. You know I can't promise that. If you did that, I would make love to you right now. I promise I will never die. And this is exactly what happens with fucking Sam here. It it cuts back to Sam and his face is totally serious. And he says, I promise you, I won't die. Just like fucking Team America. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is too funny to, to conflate this Team America moment into this Game of Thrones episode. (laughs) <laughs> just fucking hilarious. Oh my god, so funny. So uh, then it, it cuts to uh, Pip, who's freaking out as he's getting the era, the bolts and crossbows ready. And uh, he's freaking out for good reason, because he's going to die. You know, he's going to die. So Sam starts to uh, try to give him some motivational talk. And he's like, well, there's, there's lots more wildlings on the other side of the wall than this side. We've got loads of weapons and things, you know. It's the perfect, perfect place for us to be. And Pip's like, I've never thrown a spear before. I've never even held a sword with a proper edge. This is no place for me to be. You're not afraid? <laughs> to, you know, to Sam, he's like, of course I'm afraid. Um, there's a, ba- by- a band of wildlings coming to kill us. 
And he's like, if you're afraid of a band of wildlings, how in seven hells did you manage to kill a white walker? And I love this part with Sam. He's like, he's like, I didn't know I was going to kill it, but I had to do something. I didn't have any choice. And this is the mark of a hero, you know, that there yes. is no choice. There's only one path to choose, a call to action that you can't refuse when something is worth protecting, you know, something worth more than your life. And in the, in the first case for Sam, it was Gilly and the babe. So uh, he, he was like, he's like, he was going to kill Gilly and take the baby. And then he goes into really, really interesting line psychologically, which stands out to me. If someone had asked me my name right then, I wouldn't have known. I wasn't Samuel Tarley anymore. I wasn't a steward in the Night's Watch or son of Randall Tarley or any of that. I was nothing at all. And when you're nothing at all, there's no more reason to be afraid. Which I thought was great, because he became secondary to something that was more important, which was protecting Gilly and the baby. And it's a similar type situation now, where like they, you know, for John, where we'll get to that in a bit, but he's got to protect the realms, he's got to protect the wall, and he steps up. There's no other choice, like you said, he steps right into the role, because it's just what he has to do, and he knows it. But uh, Pip says to him, but you're, you're afraid now? And he's like, well, yes, well, I'm, I'm not nothing anymore, which is funny. And I wanted to know what, what your take on that was. What do you think he meant by that? Like, I'm not nothing anymore. I think he feels responsible for Gilly and little Sam at this point, that he felt like nothing before because his father practically disowned and said, I'm going to murder you if you don't go up to the wall. Mm-hmm. You're a worthless piece of shit. Like, get out of my face leave you're not my heir so i think for a long time sam felt like nothing because he was nothing in his father's eyes he wasn't even like worth sticking around hornhill right and through this process of becoming a night's watchman and maybe finding a little bit of purpose i think sam takes his oath very seriously because going back to the scene with gilly and he goes i am a man of the night's watch gilly i made a promise to defend the wall and i have to keep it because that's what men do yeah and i think he has a sense of belonging i think he has a sense of purpose now i think he's in love for the first time Mm -hmm. he feels responsible for putting Gilly and Sam in danger down in Molestown. And he knows what his vows mean. And he, while he may take them very literally, um, <laughs> As he, he, should. he takes them very seriously. And so I, I took him saying, I am not nothing anymore because he has a purpose. Right. Yeah, he, I agree. He has a purpose with the night's watch, whether it's not necessarily like battle ready purpose, but he's, He's educating himself in the library. He's he's playing a part, and he feels somewhat important now. And he has an As, opportunity and a connection with someone who, that he loves, which gives him a reason to protect himself now as well as as her. Yeah, we uh, see that because in that scene, he actually kisses her after right. he says that. It's like that's what men do, and I'm you know gonna kiss you now because I love you and. I'm going to protect you that that my vows mean that I'm supposed to help my fellow brothers, but it also means that applies I to, to you. you. 
Yeah. So that was like the 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 larger of the two implications from the question of uh, or the the statement that I'm not nothing anymore. The other uh, more obvious explanation is referring to because you know when he's when he's when he was nothing in that adrenaline filled moment, gonna where he has to fight the White Walker. Um, it was the adrenaline's pumping and he forgets about himself. And so it could be the, the surface meaning of, well, I'm not nothing anymore. You know, as far as Pip is concerned is, well, that moment is over. I, you know, I, I remember who I am right now, you know, <laughs> like I'm not caught up in the, in, in a moment where I just have something to do. I'm more like back to my senses. So I'm not nothing anymore at this moment. But yeah, yeah the overall, the bigger overarching theme is what you just uh, eloquently described. So yeah, cool. There's like a I just like how that has some, like sort of a little dual meaning in there. Completely, absolutely. So uh, moving on to the next half of the hero's choices or lack thereof, we get to John, and like you said, he stepped right up into the role on the top of the wall. No choice, no options. Nobody had to do. Did it. And then after the battle, Sam is like, "We held them off," you know, and. John is more, um, you know, sober about it for one night. But this is a, a great victory. A great victory. Mance was testing our defenses. He almost made it through. And he has more giants. He has more mammoths. He has 1,000 times as many men. They'll hit us again tonight. Maybe we can hold them off for a day or two. But we'll never beat them. And uh, he's obviously going somewhere. So Sam's like, well... Where are you going? You know, he's like, going to find Mance. And this is another mark of a hero. There's no choice. He's doing what must be done, no matter the cost. There's no one to give any orders. There's no one left for that. Mance has united a hundred warring tribes, and they're all out there. And the only option that John sees is to try to kill Mance, to set their army uh, into disarray. And uh, he's going to go and try to do it. And it's, you know, the, there's a couple different, you know, types of heroes. There's reluctant heroes, which we get in the hero's journey a lot of times. And I'm sure there's, there's plenty of parallels in this story to go along with that. But in this moment, there's no reluctance. John just, he has a mission. He knows what he needs to do. He's going to step up and do it. And uh, Sam's like, that's fucking great. You know, what, if you, even if you manage to kill him, what do you think they'll do to you? And he's like... They'll kill me, you know, like, if well, if I don't go, they'll kill us anyway, and they'll kill the rest of us too, you know? So, uh, so Sam's like, they won't just kill you. They'll boil you, they'll flay you, make it, they'll make it last days. And he's like, he's like, you're right. It's a bad plan. What's your plan? You know, and, and Sam is just kind of like, uh, boink, boink. And does like a double cartoon <laughs> eye blink, you know? Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, they they go through the tunnel. They find Gran and company and Mag, and and John's just like, raise the outer gate and lower it as soon as I'm out. And he starts taking off his sword belt. And Sam's like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, I promised Mormont I'd never lose it again. And hands it to him in case I don't come back. And I love uh, Sam's Sam's response here, John. Come back. Come back. <laughs> yeah. Just so great. And it's yeah. just so hardcore that he's got a task. He knows what he's got to do. And in order to pl- to play into his cover, 
to fit to play the role. He's even going unarmed to give him a better opportunity to get closer to Mance. And uh, these are the marks of heroes doing what you what you need to do with no hesitation, have, knowing that there's no choice. There was never neither of them even considered the options of not making the decisions that they made. It's just not part of the equation for the hero. The hero knows and and just acts. And uh, these are, it's just, it's cool to see the rise of heroes in this episode. Totally. Love it. So yeah, that's pretty much wraps up my number one. That's a great number one. I like that a lot. Thanks. So let's uh, jump back into um, any other notes that we have. Should we start at the beginning with uh, the conversation at the top of the wall, which we kind of talked about? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Cool. So Sam is asking John, what was she like? You know, (laughs) she had red hair. Oh, how big were her feet? You know, like, give me something to work with, John, which is funny. And um, so John, like, like I said, thought that he was banging Gilly, basically. So he's like, what, you and Gilly never? And he's like, no. She just, she just had, had a, a baby. baby. <laughs> yeah. She's hilarious. And she never offered. Yeah, and she never offered. It's like, but if she had, you would have. You would have broken your vows. And so, Sam, this is where he, you know, the intellect comes in. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, our, now, our vows never specifically forbid intimate relations with women. And John's like, what? He's like, I shall take no wife. Yes, that's in there. There's no denying that. I shall father no children. It's very specific. But what our vows, what our vows have to say of about other activities is open to interpretation. <laughs> Fucking brilliant! I love Sam, <laughs> and he's right. He's right, you know. And John's like, totally. I don't, I don't think Sir Alistair cares much for interpretation, which is just kind of a funny comedic little line. And uh, Sam and we retorts know this because you know alistair is ripping him a new one earlier in this series about sleeping with the wildling right you know, right it's right like he clearly has no tolerance of of that whatsoever yep and uh sam has a funny retort there anyway there's nothing for him to him to interpret because <laughs> nothing, nothing even happened, happened anyway <laughs> so uh he goes on to ask john what it's like to have sex basically and john's response is hilarious it's there's this person, this this whole other person, and you're wrapped up in them, and they're wrapped up in you, and you, for a little, for, for a little while, you're, you're more than just you. You're, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a bleeding poet. <laughs> just fucking no, you're hilarious not. Line. You're really, really not, John. And uh, and what did I get for it? An arrow six inches from my heart. There'll be arrows for us all soon, I imagine. You know, <laughs> there will. <laughs> And uh, Sam doesn't seem to care because at this point, because they've already done the worst thing they could ever do to him, he says, which is he is uh, the slaughter of Gilly, which he is assuming occurred at Molestown. Yes. So uh, you know, John's like, "Oh, you're you're having a rough day. Go go get some sleep, buddy. I'll take this watch." <laughs> Pretty funny. Yeah, which is nice. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, "You just need to get some rest. I'll take this watch tonight." Yep. <laughs> All right, your turn. What do you got? Um, so I'm going to go back to when the wildlings are camping out just below the south gate and Tormund's talking about fucking his bear and Egret starts, you know, right now I don't want to think about the bear you never fucked. And 
But Fen goes, you've got a lot to say about killing even more than those arrows. And so they start kind of going toe to toe. She's clearly still pissed off. And he's like, again, she's got a ton of arrows. (laughs) Yeah, because she's just taking kind of a rage out. Fucking rage. And making the arrows. And he's like, I'm going to find this arrow into the into my crow's heart. And that's when she says, you know, if any of you touch him, I'll have an arrow for you. Yeah, and I love the way she delivers this line. She uh, she like takes a step back from Stir and spins around to the whole group. Anyone else tries to kill him, I'll have an arrow for them. Yeah, and so he's just kind of egging her on because he's just messing with her. And, you know, he's like, I bet when you see your crow, you're going to serve him up a nice juicy slice of ginger minge. <laughs> I thought that was such a great line. What you've been thinking about this, Ginger Minge? (laughs) I just thought that was so funny. Totally. Um, And while they're arguing, we see Gilly walk right by them. Oh, right. She's walking up the... Because she's above them. They're kind of down below. Yeah, and so she's scurrying up the pathway, and she stops and looks down and, and scurries right past them. So... I, I, for the longest time, I never realized that was Gilly. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, I like the way you they know, did that. like it didn't connect with me until like maybe my fifth or sixth time watching. I was like, oh, that has to be Gilly because then the next time we see her is, um, or down in that, that we, we for, then go to Sam and Eamon, which we covered in great detail in the in the library mm-hmm. but the next scene that we go to is pip is arguing with gilly on the other side of the gate and he's so like i'm funny. sorry i can't open the gate i have orders not to open it for anybody <laughs> yeah and so you know sam is on his way to bed because that's what Eamon told him to do and he's walking across and he hears gilly and you know he's like pip open the gate and he's like no i'm not supposed to open it for anyone he's like oh fucking open the gate <laughs> Yeah, and, and Pip opens it like, or he goes, "Pip, open the fucking gate!" <laughs> and so Pip like scurries. To, he's like, "I've never heard you curse like that before." He's like, "I think he said like it won't be the last time or something like." That. Yes, yes. Well, best get used to it. <laughs> so I, I thought that was great, and they, you know, hug each other and. You know, she's like, oh my god, it was awful. And you know, he's like, I'm so relieved that you're here. And you know, he's like, from now on, wherever you go, I go too. Yeah, a promise he can't keep. Yeah, and so at least not then, very well. We then pan up up to the wall, and John, you know, the the horns blowing the the fire because we've talked a lot about the scenes leading up to this so the next thing i have in my notes is john looking down on the biggest fire the north has ever seen yep and the horn is blowing in the background and the music starts such good music oh i just get goosebumps every time i like the barrels are rolling into position yeah it's like the pit of my stomach kind of drops every time i see that big fire because it's just like it's starting and that's quite an incredible fire to start in a frozen tundra if you will yeah it's pretty impressive kind of wondering how they got frozen trees to light on fire but 
you know, we'll just <laughs> we'll just let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of um, I, I just love that. I get goosebumps every time I hear that music. Yeah, it's so good. Some of the best. So what's your uh, next note? Let's see. I guess it's worth noting that Egret's hesitation to kill John is sort of foreshadowed in the moment where uh, they get the signal that it's time to, to roll on the wall. And Tormund, I think, is like, let's kill some crows, you know, and everybody starts running to advance towards the wall. And Egret has a moment where she looks down into the fire and you can see trepidation on her face where she is, she just feels like you can tell she's just nervous about it and not really necessarily really wanting to go through with with it worried about what's going to happen basically you know am i going to have yeah. to kill him is he alive like so that was that was kind of interesting oh uh, some of the just the slaughter that's going on when the when they finally invade down in castle black is great one guy gets stabbed right through the eye and he's just like ah! Oh yeah, <laughs> and Stir has that massive double-sided battle axe. He's just trashing everyone with it. He's sometimes he's using the tip of like the edge of it to slice. Other times he's just whack slapping people with the side of it and just like yeah. knocking them upside the head. Really cool. And Igrit is just ferociously shooting at any crows that she can find with shoulder length dark hair. You know, anybody that looks like Jon Snow, she's just yeah, blasting she's away at him. And uh, Ollie's operating the lift. One of the chefs employs a, a big tub of boiling liquid and dumps it on a wildling. And then another chef walks through with a massive butcher's cleaver on his shoulder and just smashes a guy with it, which is really cool. Pip finally kills a guy, and Sam's like, oh, is it over? <laughs> I got one right through the heart. He's dead. <laughs> well, then, let's keep going. And that's uh, right when Grit shoots him, and Sam is just, like, uh, trying to comfort him as he dies. Sad moment. Oh, yeah. She's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get Maester Eamon, and Pip just starts grabbing at him, like, don't leave me. Like, don't leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And so Sam kind of settles back down, and it's all right you know <laughs> yeah mr Eamon's coming coming oh gosh it's so sad but nope he dayed what, what a horrible way to go definitely so then um at one point when sam is going back up to try to inform john of the situation below that alistair has fallen and everything he hops on the elevator and screams at ollie to uh to activate the elevator but ollie's like out of it in a ptsd he's in shell shock and uh, he changes his tone, which is kind of funny for the audience. Your name's Ollie, right? Listen to me, Ollie. Get me to the top. Blah blah. I just thought it was funny how he changes like tone there to try to like you know get Ollie to start paying attention. So yeah, I think he he recognized that he was terrified, and I think Sam may be a little bit more open to recognizing that because he came to Castle Black pretty cowardly and. Right, so he knows and, that he wouldn't want to be screamed at either. Yeah, so I think he had kind of a soft spot for him, and he's like, the, the only way that I'm going to get this kid to listen is just to calm down, and, you know, yep. he's, a little, he's a little boy, so. But, so. but what's the last thing that Sam says to him here? To fight them. Yeah, find a weapon, and Ollie. It, fight them. And it pans to the bow. Right, yes. so we can kind of blame Sam for Igrit's death. Yes. Interestingly enough. Definitely. 
Got any other notes? Um, the only other note that I have is when they drop the scythe, boys. Yeah, Chekhov's scythe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, man. I mean, <laughs> who would have ever thought that there's like this giant anchor frozen in the wall? And I, I mean, they're getting close. And I didn't, you know, when I first watched this episode when john tells ed to you know if the climbers get too high drop the side on them oh I, that's I what he no... thought he said side yeah he said scythe yeah so i originally thought he said side on them i'm like what is he talking about and right. then yeah i think a lot I of see... people have had the same question they were like what the fuck did he just say I yeah i didn't and you know then obviously when we cue to this portion of the episode i realized he said you know, Scythe? Scythe. Scythe, okay, yeah. Yeah, Scythe. He pronounced it with a V. Scythe. Yeah, the Scythe. And You know what a Scythe is um, regularly? This is sort of like a different styled Scythe, but do you know what a no. Scythe is? You know the, the, the Grim Reaper, how he has that stick with a hooked blade on the end of it? Uh-huh. That's a Scythe. It's meant for like chopping down wheat and stuff like that oh okay so in this circumstance instead of wheat sticking off the ground it's it's wildlings sticking up out of the wall and it just sweeps right through them all and i have <laughs> i have uh, written down Chekhov's scythe leaves climbing wildlings a red mist hand hanging <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love Completely. that part yeah that was pretty intense yeah the scythe is a cool addition that's not featured in the books also, oh, so, it's uh, not right. Interesting. Yeah, so it's a it's kind of cool just to throw in a little surprise for book readers to keep them on their toes, and it was a very creative uh, way to do that. Really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I I just said cue this giant anchor that rips through the climbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That thing is fucking awesome. And then. Um, you know, it's at this moment that the wildlings decide that it's enough for one evening. And yep. all of the people around Ed start cheering, and Ed goes, don't cheer too loud. They still outnumber us a thousand to one. Yeah, how fucking crazy is that? Oh, my God. I just can't even think about that. Right. A so we mentioned that. One. Yeah. We mentioned it in last episode too, but I, I guess it's worth mentioning again that this, um, since we love talking about historical parallels, this sort of parallels the, uh, the battle of Thermopylae, which the movie 300 was based on where 300 Spartans defended against a hundred thousand, um, Persians using a very narrow passage and a, like not a foolproof, but a very effective phalanx tactic of, uh, of fighting. So the the obviously the tunnel, as the single narrow passage at the base of the wall, sort of represents the the, the pass at Thermopylae, and the uh, the Night's Watch are the Spartans, and the Wildlings are the Persians. So just a great uh, historical parallel there um, for this whole battle as well. And uh, that pretty much Absolutely. wraps all my notes up, actually. Yeah, mine too. It, I mean, this, I know we've said it, but this was a hard one to dissect into a top five. Yeah, I think it, we did a good job, though. I do too. It, it's just such a great 
coup to the showrunners and the editors that it was one giant scene that was so seamless and fun to watch from a perspective of a viewer. I mean, while it took place at the wall, I thought they did such a great job of sectioning, you know, the battle of the South Gate, the top of the wall, the battle to the north side of the wall. It was, it, it gave it so much dynamic and depth and it didn't get um, redundant and kind of, okay, we've been watching people battle now for 45 minutes. Yeah, you know, none of that, that at all. Came, I and, never felt bored once. And we covered but, it in a few, previous episode that the the castles on the wall are intentionally left defenseless from the south so that the Night's Watch is incapable of rebelling against the southern kings, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So that has the it has the negative <laughs> side effect of making it vulnerable to attack from the wildlings in this case, unfortunately. Any other uh, notes you got? Nope, I think I'm good. All right, cool. So uh, we'll take a little break. Stick with us, guys. We'll be right back. about Game of Thrones from winteriscoming.net Join us as we mourn a loss Kit Harrington has cut his Game of Thrones hair by David Harris no! aka Razor <laughs> and I posted this on Facebook with the uh, with the caption and ovaries sh- uh, shriveled all across <laughs> the lands of all the kingdoms <laughs> so onto the article May we have your attention, please. It is with a heavy heart that I must announce that today, November 23rd, 2018, Black Friday, will forever be remembered as the day we learned Game of Thrones star Kit Harington has finally cut his long and luxuriously curly locks. Nothing will ever be the same again. News of this most tragic event came to us via Generis Targaryens on Twitter, who shared the photo of Harrington's new look. Prepare yourselves, for this is what the vast and cold emptiness of abandonment looks like. And there you have it. Kit Harrington has apparently given up his lucrative and successful career at acting to become a hipster artisanal mushroom farmer. <laughs> Based on this photo, apparently. So, for more funny prose regarding Jon Snow's hair, go to winteriscoming.net and check out the rest of that article. And that's it for news, so let's move on to our Game of Thrones and History segment. This week we're covering an article from businessinsider.com. Five times Game of Thrones based schemes, massacres, and battles on real moments in history by Ayn Kane. And we'll just cover a couple of these. The first is the Battle of the Bastards is a twist on a famous Carthaginian victory. The Battle of the Bastards, which saw the noble-hearted Jon Snow face off against the wicked Ramsay Bolton, 
was one of the most raved about episodes of season six. The numerous, immersive, intense battle scenes kicked this episode into high gear for many viewers. The whole thing also likely looked rather familiar to classical scholars. That's because the showrunners mirrored the whole clash on the Battle of Cannae, as Kristen Acuna wrote for Tech Insider. That famous 216 CE battle is now regarded as one of the most impressive tactical victories of all time. After spending two years rampaging about the Italian peninsula, Carthaginian leader Hannibal Barca cemented his status as a military legend by surrounding and defeating his enemies with a much smaller force. Ramsay's forces used a similar pincer movement during the Battle of the Bastards. John was ultimately able to subvert the historical model and break free of Ramsay's circle of death with the help of reinforcements from the Erie. In Hannibal's case, the Roman legions were butchered, leaving up to 70,000 dead, including Roman consul Lucius Aemilius Paulus. Paulus's son-in-law, Scipio Africanus, <laughs> would ultimately <laughs> defeat Hannibal once and for all at Zama. Thanks for not giving me that one to read. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. All right. The Boltons share their habit of skinning people alive with an ancient regime. Getting flayed alive is probably one of the worst ways to go out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's no surprise that skinning people was a favorite pastime of Ramsey Bolton, one of the worst characters to ever grace the small screen. But this antagonist's gruesome hobby didn't simply come from the dark side of Martin's imagination. In fact, one ancient kingdom was famous for skinning its enemies. According to the blog History Buff, the Assyrian king... Ashurnasapal II claimed to have flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spent, some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on spikes upon the pile. Ugh. I flayed as many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. Yikes. That is fucking hardcore. Gross. Super gnarly. Oh, man, that's one I was not familiar with, so I love to keep hearing all these. Both of these, actually, I hadn't heard yet, so we're starting to dig pretty deep into the uh, the historical references on this show. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. There have been several Red Wedding-style attacks through the centuries. The Red Wedding traumatized fans and will likely be remembered as the bloodiest, most harrowing party to ever grace television. A strikingly similar attack took place in Ireland in 1574. I mean, in Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> An Irish chieftain named Sir Brian MacFellim O'Neill ruled over the kingdom of Clannaboyd and had previously been knighted by the English crown. When he lost the queen's favor, he began to fight against the English invaders. Eventually, however, he invited... Walter Devereux, the Earl of Essex, to his castle to discuss peace terms over a Christmas feast, according to Wayne E. Lee's Barbarians and Brothers. At the Earl's signal, Sir Brian, his wife, and the rest of the family were seized, while 200 of their followers were indiscriminately slaughtered. Sir Brian O'Neill and his family were all subsequently executed. A similar situation occurred in Scotland during the 1692 Massacre of Glencoe. Captain Robert Campbell and his and 120 of his men were given hospitality at Clan MacDonald's castle. 
After two weeks, a message arrived ordering Campbell to attack, according to Britannica. One winter's night, the soldiers played cards with their victims and bid them pleasant dreams as usual. Then they massacred all the McDonald's men they could find, including the chief. Another Red Wedding-esque incident, the similarly named Black Dinner, went down in Scotland in 1440. Advisors of the 10-year-old King James II grew concerned that Clan Douglas was growing too bold and too powerful, according to The Week. These advisors invited the 16-year-old Earl of Douglas and his younger brother to come over to Edinburgh, Edinburgh Castle. The king and the Douglases had an enjoyable time. Nothing seemed amiss. Then, at the end of the dinner, the severed head of a bull, a symbol of Clan Douglas, was tossed onto the table. Like the reigns of Castamere at the Red Wedding, this was a signal. Much to the young king's horror, his two friends were dragged outside, put through a mock trial, and decapitated. Ugh. Yeah. So for the other two examples from this article, go to businessinsider.com and check out the article Five Times Game of Thrones-Based Schemes, Massacres, and Battles on Real Moments in History. You hear that? Caw! Caw! <laughs> Sir Matthew of House Rep. I love that John gained the upper hand on Stir the Fen using the same dirty trick Carl Tanner used on him. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Gren and Pip. They both fought bravely, especially Gren against the charging giant. Also, Sam the Slayer gets another kill. Yeah. Janos Slint is such a little rat. Oh, yes, he is. He is so pompous and self righteous, but at the first sign of battle, he runs and hides. Good thing John and later Ed were there to actually lead the men on the wall. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, big time. Thanks, Sir Matthew. Lord Axel of House Ericsson. I'm a big fan of epic battles, so this might actually be my favorite episode of Game of Thrones. One of the things that has to be mentioned is how badass Sir Alistair Thorne is. All the way from atop the wall when he teaches John about leadership to down below with his epic battle speech and fearless fighting. I think the fact that the show writers have made the normie watcher sort of hate him makes his heroic act even, acts even cooler. I agree. Me too. And it's cool that the actor got some moments where like, he's admirable and everything like that. <laughs> yeah. Lord Axel goes on. I think that he is a great character overall that receives too much criticism. Without him and his training of new recruits, the watch would be in a much worse position. A shame they kill him off later. So sad to see both Pip and Gren go. Both loyal comrades that made John's story, in lack of better words, warmer and funnier. And I guess you will have talked about a lot about Egrit. <laughs> yeah, we talked quite a bit about Egrit. A bit about Egrit, a bit about Egrit. <laughs> also, a great episode in terms of showing different military techniques. Those archers leaning out over the wall was really cool. That's something yeah, that we didn't was mention. Cool. Yeah, great really, catch. Really cool. Yeah, leaning out over and shooting arrows downwards at the climbers. Really cool. And didn't one of them get cut loose? I don't want loose? that job. <laughs> I don't want that job. Yeah, no thanks. No, thank you. Yeah, one of them went plummeting down to their death, if I remember correctly. Yes, they did. About the time when that barrel exploded at the top of the wall and sent flaming shrapnel impaling a bunch of brothers and stuff. Yep. Yeah, craziness. 
Axel goes on, since some people style themselves in a Song of Ice and Fire fashion, I will start to call myself Sir Axel of House Erickson, inhabitant of the land of almost always winter. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that Sir Axel is writing from Sweden, the north oh, of wow. Sweden. wow. Very cool. Where winter is there for six months a year. So he wow. is not joking. The land of almost always winter. The real north. It's epic. That is. That's pretty far north. Yeah. Finishing off, Sir Axel says, Great job, guys. Looking forward to listening to Mockingbird on the morrow. Yeah, Thank thanks. you so much for writing. Great feedback. Sir Pete of House Clark. An idea for Braun of the Blackwater's house sigil would be the twin towers of House Frey using gold coins instead of bricks against a green field with an archer in black silhouette shooting a green flaming arrow at a 45 degree angle. House words, with 20 good men, it can be done. I like it. He also says, another reason the Red Viper shouts at the mountain is that he studied him over the years in preparation for one-on-one -on -one combat and found out that he suffers from migraine headaches. So, shouting was an edge and was part of his game plan. Great point. Yeah, apparently the mountain quaffs milk of the poppy like ale to try to combat those crazy headaches. Luke, the low duke. Greetings, as ever. Looking forward to your insights. A few observations on the watchers on the wall. For all his faults, Sir Alistair is somewhat redeemed. For all his faults, Sir Alistair somewhat redeemed himself. For now. By admitting his fault to John and by leading the defense of Castle Black. Continuing on a comment by Lady Rachel previously, Sam also talks about being nothing at all, and therefore having no reason to be afraid against the White Walker. So John's only plan at the end is to go and meet Mance. What happened to sealing the tunnel? That was a good plan. <laughs> I am, my dear podcast hosts, yours faithfully, Sir Luke the Low Duke. And now that you mention it, Sam talking about being nothing and nothing at all kind of reminds me of the concept of being no one. And, uh... When you're no one, you kill stuff. Just like when Sam was nothing, he killed that White Walker. So that's pretty cool. Thanks, Sir Luke. All right, that's our show. Episode 81. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yes, thanks for listening and continuing to send your feedback. We absolutely love the stuff that our Ravens calls bring to our attention. Totally. Next episode, we'll be covering Season 4, Episode 10, the finale, The Children. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on the air. Winter is coming, and holiday season is here. So if you'd like to support Game of Microphones without spending any extra money, you can this year, for your holiday shopping, just go to gameofmicrophones.com and click on our link to Amazon. And while all your prices will remain the same, Game of Microphones receives a little finder's fee from Amazon for everything you buy in that session. We're directing you to their site. It's super easy to do, doesn't cost you a penny more, and makes a huge difference for us. Now, you can also donate directly to Game of Microphones or subscribe monthly by going to paypal.me slash gompodcast or by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash gompodcast. And you can always still sign up for free audiobook trials at audible.com as well for a free month and getting a free book of your choice. 
No obligation to spend any money. You can cancel at any time, and it gives a little kickback to Game of Microphones as well. And there's links for all that at GameOfMicrophones.com. We'd also like to give a warm thank you to our first Patreon supporters this week. So a huge thanks to Sir Matthew of House Rep, Lady Lucy of House Roberts, Lady Candace of House Twos, Sirenicide, Lord Jeff of House Allen, Lord Zach of House Bruce, and Sir Luke, the Low Duke. We love you guys and appreciate your patronage. Thanks. Yes, thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. If you'd like to call, you can always call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you would like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. And while you're there, give us a like and a rating. And since we've been back, we're no longer appearing in the search results for Game of Thrones in the podcasts app on iPhone. So it would probably help a lot and bump us back into the search results if you guys could go to iTunes and give us a nice review on there. We'd really appreciate it. Imslap! You can also listen to Game of Microphones on YouTube, BitChute, and Steemit. Just search for Game of Microphones to find our channel. We can't create a custom URL on YouTube until we have at least 100 subscribers. So please subscribe as well. Likes, comments, and shares are also greatly appreciated. We'll probably be uh, uploading actual videos to YouTube in the near future, too, so look forward to that. Yes. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Minds, at GOM Podcast. We're also on Tumblr, at Game of Microphones. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. They won't just kill you, they'll boil you, they'll flay you, they'll make it last days. You're right. It's a bad plan. What's your plan? Raise the outer gate, then lower it as soon as I'm out. What are you doing? I promised Mormont I'd never lose it again, in case I don't come back. John, come back. That was nasty. That's a nasty way to go. So awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing down yeah, here? Busted. <laughs> and the, the sound effects of the wind. <laughs> it was a difficult decision either way, sir. Fucking rage. I know you never fucked a bear. <laughs> right now you I know don't you want never to never fucked a bear. <laughs> yeah. Right now I don't want to think about the bear you never fucked. <laughs> burly. Burly, yeah, just burly fighting bitches, you know. <laughs> But his legs are like <laughs> moving along. It's just kind of funny. Does knock fucking mean draw? <laughs> like a ghost. <laughs> Must have scared a poop nugget out of him, like for sure. You know. <laughs> oh, you want to know? Do you? I'm gonna boil you. Anyone else tries to kill him, I'll have an arrow for them. <laughs> Or he goes, Pip, open the fucking gate. Sam is just kind of like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
It does like the double cartoon <laughs> eye blink, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.